My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law. These three lectures are designed to introduce the contemporary international law regime governing foreign investment. This is the first lecture, An Introduction and History, from the 1780s to early 1990s. As the first PowerPoint to this lecture indicates, the first lecture will describe key moments in the history of the regime. I will tell the story of how the regime took its present shape over some 200 years. My second lecture will discuss the rise and evolution of U.S. bilateral investment treaties, or BITS, to illustrate how many countries, not only the U.S., have used and reacted to BITS. My third lecture will describe the current regime and its complexity, the contents of BITS, but also other international investment agreements, which we now call generally IIAs. That lecture will also describe the regime's second major component, the case law issued by arbitrators charged with interpretation and enforcement. That lecture will end with the many complaints against the regime and the many reforms to the regime that are now being contemplated. Each lecture is accompanied by a PowerPoint that is available on the AVL website under Related Materials section, which I urge listeners to have handy, as well as links to helpful documents. You will see that many of those documents are the treaties to which I will be referring. I consider familiarity with the text of international investment agreements to be a basic skill for anyone who wants to know the regime, and therefore I spend considerable time on them. To permit easier downloading and viewing, my three lectures are divided into two parts. Each of the parts will be between 30 to 40 minutes. Let me say at the outset that these are my own views of how the investment regime it was established and evolved over time. Others may tell a quite different story. So let's begin. Once upon a time, a feeble capital-importing nation just emerging into independence after colonial rule finds itself increasingly dependent on foreign investors and foreign capital. Much of that capital is owned by nationals and businesses from its former colonial ruler. While that state, host to foreign capital, and therefore I will call it a host state, enjoys the economic benefits provided by those foreign businesses, those foreigners provoke resentment. The new country's local courts are not sympathetic to cases brought by those foreign nationals seeking payment of debts owed to them. A number of host state laws are passed restricting those aliens' property rights, Acts of confiscation of foreign property occur. The host state's economy suffers. Foreign investors complain that customary international law ensures respect for the contractual and property rights of aliens, even during periods of crisis or outright war between the states. Even though a number of countries at the time default on foreign loans and they also treat aliens poorly, the host state and its former colonial master enter into a treaty. 
pledging to end these tensions between them and stop these abuses. Under the terms of this peace treaty, the two states agree to respect any existing or future contracts made between their respective citizens. The treaty fails, however, to guarantee compensation for expropriations of alien land holdings and relies on the host state's own courts to give it effect. The host state's courts fail to give effect to the peace treaty's promises. The continuing ill-treatment of alien investors, now in defiance of a treaty obligation, leads to emerging and continuing tensions between the two states. Partly in response to these economic tensions, the host state decides to radically alter its form of government, to give it greater control over its component parts, namely the states, little s, that form the union. Five years after concluding this first peace treaty, the fledgling democracy adopts a constitution, establishing a federal republic whose federal laws enjoy primacy over the laws of that republic's state units. The new republic's new constitution and its laws are designed in part to send a message that the state is ready to join the community of law-abiding, civilized nations that respect the rights of alien investors. The new constitution specifically provides that all debts incurred prior to its establishment remain valid. It also includes a number of prohibitions on the powers of its state units and the federal union that are intended to protect alien investors, such as an assurance that private property will never be taken for public use without just compensation. The new federal legislature confirms these rights by enabling aliens to enforce them in newly established federal courts. These assurances appear to help, at least for a while, and incoming foreign capital increases. But these measures only go so far. Foreign investors continue to complain that their rights are not being respected in the still weak federal republic. Within two years of the adoption of the new constitution, negotiations begin on a new bilateral treaty between the two states that would resolve disputes with the country's leading private creditors, who remain as before nationals of the state's former colonial ruler. This second treaty is more specific about the rights due uh, to both countries' respective aliens than the first. Most significantly, the new treaty provides for independent state-to-state -state arbitration to resolve the outstanding disputes between the host state and foreign private investors from the other treaty party. It includes a mechanism consisting of a five-person arbitral commission, two appointed by each party state, and the remaining arbitrator chosen by those four or by lot. And, the, and they would settle a large number of pre-existing foreign creditor claims against the host state. Now, when the provisions of this proposed new investment treaty become public, a political firestorm erupts in the host state. The president of the host state, who proposed the treaty, 
is burned in effigy. Its leading negotiator is ridiculed as inept at best and perhaps a traitor. And leading voices in the federal legislature threaten to refuse to ratify the treaty. The Investor Protective Treaty is criticized as unbalanced, as contrary to international and national law, and as unconstitutional. The perception that the treaty lacks balance comes from the fact that while the respective treaty rights are formally extended to the foreign investors of both parties in the treaty, in reality, since most of those foreign investors come from the rich capital exporting state, the treaty's obligations fall in fact on the host state, while the treaty's benefits accrue to foreign investors from that capital exporting state. Critics of the treaty argue that the capital exporting state used its greater negotiating leverage to insist on a treaty that would largely benefit its own interest and that the assurances provided to alien investors are contrary to customary law. Since under that law, states have the, uh, the right to exclude aliens from their territory altogether. And under that law, say the critics, the, the, and under that law, uh, they are not required to give aliens the right to own real property and have no obligation to respect aliens' contract rights. The treaty is also seen as constitutionally flawed because it may overrule decisions taken by state courts within the new republic. And because the treaty delegates the power to settle disputes to external commissioners and goes around the host states, state or federal courts. Defenders of the treaty defend it on policy and legal grounds. They defend the constitution, uh, the constitutionality of the treaty, pointing out that the constitution was adopted after all to resolve these pending disputes and to give the underlying property and contractual rights constitutional status. They argue that the proposed treaty is consistent with existing national law, as well as the more enlightened customary international law rules that they argue has emerged to protect the rights of aliens in an increasingly commercial world. They point out that when a state accepts foreign capital into its territory, it implicitly agrees to protect that capital. They contend that the protections accorded to alien debtors in the new treaty vindicate a higher source of authority, namely what they call eternal principles of morality and good faith, close quote. Treaty proponents also argue that the new treaty is not imbalanced merely because its reciprocal protections for aliens of both treaty parties now accrue to the benefit of the capital exporting state. Reciprocity, they point out, only requires mutual promises, not equal advantage. And, they argue, a treaty is supposed to last a long time, when the host state might be expected to itself become a capital exporter. Resort to state-to-state -state international arbitration is defended as the only logical remedy, since neither nation would trust these disputes 
to the other's courts. The treaty's defenders also contend that even if some of the foreigners' debts were incurred when the two nations were originally at war, neither the existence of an armed conflict nor other emergencies render the underlying contracts of private parties invalid. War, they point out, does not terminate a treaty obligation. It is also false to claim that countries need a right to confiscate the possessions of foreign merchants in order to uphold national security. On the contrary, they argue, national security is most threatened by yielding to such temptations, since this would destroy external commerce. Suspending the rights of aliens, even during emergencies, they argue, sacrifices a country's national honor, undermines its commercial reputation, and is likely to hurt the future flow of foreign capital. In the end, the host state's legislature agrees to accept the treaty by an extraordinarily close vote. For the majority who vote in favor of the treaty, this is really the only realistic option. Foreign investors had by then returned to the host state in trust of the state's constitutional promises to protect them. These foreigners had invested heavily in bank securities, in land, in infrastructure projects, and the country could scarcely risk alienating the foreign capital that was enriching fortunes in both it and the capital exporting state. Ironically, the commissioners appointed to resolve the outstanding foreign investors' disputes under the treaty, in the end, they could not compromise to resolve them. Eight years after the conclusion of the treaty, the two states conclude a new agreement between them, whereby the underlying claims of foreign creditors were now settled by a lump sum payment. Now, students of American history are likely to recognize this story but many of you will not. It is the story of the founding of the Republic of the United States. As a newly independent country, the United States was dependent on both public and private sources of foreign capital. Its external public debt was owed to the Dutch, to the French, and the Spanish, while the principal source of its foreign private capital were the British. The first treaty I described, as is shown on the slide or the PowerPoint, is the definitive treaty of peace of 1783 between the colonies and Great Britain, whose Article 4 purported to protect the rights of British creditors who were owed substantial sums at that time uh, that the American Revolution ended. The Constitution is, of course, the U.S. Constitution, whose various provisions have been described as the 18th century equivalent of a free trade and investment deal concluded among the then existing states of the United States. That constitution included limitations on the power of the U.S. states that were designed to protect foreign creditors. It included a prohibition on the taking of property by the government, absent compensation. The second bilateral treaty described is the Treaty of Amnity, Commerce, and Navigation between Great Britain and the United States concluded in 1794, otherwise known as the Jay Treaty because Secretary of State John Jay negotiated it under the terms dictated by Alexander Hamilton. 
Alexander Hamilton, in turn, wrote the leading defense of his treaty in a series of famous public essays called The Defense. I tell this story because it contains the basic elements that underlie what we today call the international investment regime. There are important lessons in the relationship between the then fable, uh, feeble colony, the US, and its rich colonial ruler, the UK. The US states at the time were capital importers. And like many capital importers, before and since, they had a love-hate relationship with respect to foreign capital. They loved British capital and its in their investments for all the benefits it brought, from jobs to more cheaply produced goods. But U.S. nationals resented foreign investors to the extent they were viewed as sympathetic to the British crown because foreign businesses could undermine local, smaller businesses, or because the British were seen as sending too much of their profits back to Britain. As Alexander Hamilton wrote in the defense, no powers of language at my command can express the abhorrence I feel at the idea of violating the property of individuals, close quote. Now, the defense of the Jay Treaty, negotiated in 1794, that was mounted by Alexander Hamilton, anticipate by some 200 years very similar arguments that are mounted today in defense of these treaties and the arbitration methods used to resolve investor-state disputes. Then, as now, Hamilton and the opponents of the Jay Treaty debated whether, on one hand, a treaty protected alien investors could really have much of an effect on incoming capital flows. Then, as now, they argued about whether a treaty whose benefits appear to flow only in the direction of the capital exporter can be truly beneficial to the state that primarily imports capital. Then, as now, we argue about whether the treaty's investor protections affirm, go beyond, or are contrary to customary international law. And we continue to argue about whether alien property can legally be taken without compensation or in a discriminatory fashion, about whether aliens can be denied access to courts to defend their contractual or real property interests, about whether aliens' rights need to be protected in times of war or national emergency. All of these continue to be debatable points in contemporary international investment scholarship. They continue, divide to they continue to divide capital exporting, capital importing, and all states in between. Despite huge differences between the world that that nascent United States faced and those faced by rich and poor nations today, many lessons remain. Then, as now, states knew that their own national laws, how their national courts treated litigants, how their own constitutions were given effect, how all those things sent messages to foreign investors about whether they would or would not be welcome, and that would have potential consequences on subsequent capital flows. Alleviating market fears 
was a feature of national constitutions even back in 1789. Like many constitutions since, the U.S. Constitution was consciously intended to send a message to the outside world as well as to the peoples of the United States. That Constitution contained numerous mechanisms to embed it and the nation in the then existing international order. It was intentionally directed at convincing the world and particularly European creditors that the United States was both credit and treaty worthy. It did so by affirming that all debts contracted and engagements entered into before the establishment of the Constitution would remain valid, and that all treaties made, including the Treaty of Peace and its guarantees, would be, quote, the supreme law of the land, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding, close quote. Given the then unprecedented rates of foreign investment within the early U.S. Republic, as well as the extent of foreign immigration, much of the constitutionally generated contract and property jurisprudence of this early period of the U.S. was really in defense of vested rights born directly on existing or anticipated international investment. The United States, then, was born as a nation that sought to welcome both immigrants and foreign investment. Given the vast public debt owed by a nation just emerging after years of conflict, it had, like many newly independent nations since, little choice. One lesson from this story is that these lectures only cover a part of the rules that, that affect foreign investment. While national laws and constitutions are not covered in these lectures, those who listen should bear in mind that the protection of foreign investors in any country is first and foremost a matter of national or domestic law. Nonetheless, the three sources of law that I will focus on in my lectures, which are highlighted in bold in the PowerPoints, are customary international law, international investment agreements, and the arbitral case law under those agreements. Whether back in 1794 or now, states have not always respected their own laws when it comes to aliens in their midst. Whether back in 1794 or today, aliens are not seen as part of the governed, even in democracies. They are not eligible to vote, and it can be easy to ignore their rights, either formally by law or, in fact, through judicial misinterpretation. Many policymakers since Hamilton have understood that if you want to convince foreign investors that their rights will be protected, one needs to provide a backstop, namely international commitments to provide that extra assurance. This is where the international investment regime comes in and where these lectures really start. As in Hamilton's day, this protection usually takes the form of treaty guarantees to protect aliens' property rights. Both then and now, states have learned that foreign investors may need to be enticed to come into a country, may need to be persuaded to keep some of their profits in the host state to grow their business, and may need persuasion, particularly in the face of threats, political, natural, economic, 
that may otherwise drive them to leave the host state. Revolutions or other changes in government can be unkind to aliens' rights. Then as now, foreign investors often fear that once they are admitted into a host state and they set up a business, which usually means sinking a great deal of sunk costs into a host state that cannot easily be taken out once turned into physical assets, that once they do that, they will be at the mercy of that state should it change its mind and decide, for example, to impose confiscatory taxes or otherwise make the business unprofitable. This fear that foreign investors' original bargain can be rendered obsolete by a change of government or simply a change in mindset by that government. This is called the obsolescing bargain, and it has been the driving force for international legal arrangements to protect investment for centuries. Giving foreign investors assurances that they will not face that obsolescing bargain, while at the same time protecting the host state's capacity, even the host state's duty, to regulate in the public interest. Balancing those two things has been the core balancing act of the international investment regime. All of this explains why someone could have assumed when I began my Once Upon a Time lecture that I was talking about any of a number of former colonies that became independent in the 1950s or the 1960s. Many of those lesser developed countries attempted, like the United States in the 18th century, to deny monies or property owed to their foreign investors. Like the U.S. at that time, many of those states saw this as a necessary part of their economic and not just political independence, uh, and that this was a way to be independent from their colonial masters. And like the U.S., most of those states ultimately and perhaps reluctantly came around to deciding that continuing tensions with foreign investors were not in their national interest. Like the U.S. under the Jay Treaty, many of those states opted, particularly in the immediate wake of the end of the Cold War in the 1990s, to conclude bilateral treaties with capital exporting countries from where those foreign investors came. These treaties, today's bilateral investment treaties or BITS, were like the Jay Treaty, designed to protect foreigners' property rights. Like the Jay Treaty of 1794, today's BITS generally provide a method for settling disputes between those investors and their lesser developed country hosts, and that those methods for settling disputes are distinct from the country's national courts. Even as early as the, the 18th century, the home courts of states were not seen as sufficiently impartial to handle cases involving alien investors. The Jay Treaty's recourse to arbitration went as far as it was conceivable in the 18th century, and actually much further than other states had done previously. As I discussed, it established a state-to-state -state ad hoc mechanism charged with dealing with defined category of pre-existing disputes between Britain and its investors and the United States government and usually really meaning the states of the U.S. It would take many years for policymakers to conceive of the possibility of establishing permanent and not only ad hoc international dispute settlement mechanisms 
that would be in place in advance of future comparable disputes and not just respond to disputes after they have already arisen. In the modern era, state-to-state -state arbitrations have come to be supplemented by mechanisms that borrow from commercial arbitration between private parties. Today, most bits, as we will see, enable private investors without the intervention of their home states to bring claims against their host states. This later development has come to be known as Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. But how did we get from 1794 to what today many call the spaghetti soup of over 3,000 international investment agreements, or IIAs, and hundreds of publicly available and therefore closely studied ISDS arbitral rulings. The second part of this lecture will take this question up.